The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud with me, Lyndon Kemcarran. Each week we choose our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week, Freddie Gray takes a trip to planet Biden and imagines what would happen if little green men invaded Earth and found a big orange one back in the White House. Kate Andrews finds herself appalled by the so-called advice routinely handed out to women that can be at best judgmental and at its worst slightly bullying. And Lloyd Evans spills the beans on searching for love on his recent blind date, courtesy of The Guardian. First up, it's Freddie Gray. If aliens attacked Earth, do you think we would be safer under Joe Biden or Donald Trump? That's a question in a new poll of American voters, and 43% of respondents opted for Trump, 32% for Biden, while 25% sagaciously picked don't know. It's fun to imagine President Donald in charge against the extraterrestrials. Zogblad the Magnificent is a good friend of mine, Trump would shout from the White House lawn as the helicopter blades of Marine One clattered away behind. He said some very nice things about me, believe me, things you wouldn't believe. But we can't have him exerting the supreme authority of the nebulons over our beautiful planet. The most beautiful planet in the universe, they say. The little green men wouldn't know what to make of the big orange one. Sci-fi aside, that survey might be more revealing than you think, especially given the current mania for unidentified aerial phenomena, and the fact that the polls consistently show that almost half of Americans believe alien spacecraft have visited our world. Americans might not like Trump, but a growing number believe their nation is in peril, and when existential push comes to apocalyptic shove, the people of the land of the free would rather have Trump than Biden in the White House. Last weekend, An ABC Washington Post poll showed Trump beating Biden by 51% to 42% in a hypothetical 2024 matchup. A single poll could be written off as an outlier, but Biden's numbers look worse the more you dig into them, especially if, as seems all too likely, he faces Trump at the ballot next year. Of the 56% who disapprove of Biden, a large proportion believe that life was better under Trump. It's well known that Americans are worried about Biden's age, Some 70% think he's too old to serve a second term, but his administration's problems go deeper. The White House keeps trumpeting its economic achievements, but voters aren't listening. 64% of those surveyed by ABC Washington Post disapprove of the president's handling of the economy, whereas only 49% felt the same way looking back about Trump. Americans are very concerned about aliens, the illegal, not the interplanetary sort. And on that score, Biden is failing miserably too. 62% disapprove of his handling of the US-Mexico border. Perhaps most disturbingly for Team Biden, 53% of 18 to 35-year-olds appear to prefer the last president to the current one. Biden's dismal performance has triggered yet more talk in Washington of a dump Joe movement gaining ground in democratic circles. The problem with that idea is that despite all his embarrassing senior moments, Biden shows no indication that he's had enough. Unless he stands down, 
it's hard to see anybody stopping him. More than 60% of Democratic voters say they want a different candidate on their ticket in 2024, but nobody knows who that should be. Only 8% of Democrats who want to ditch Biden support Kamala Harris. 20% prefer just someone else. There is no credible alternative. The Biden White House is worried, though. You can tell because its officials keep insisting that they are not. We don't take the ups and downs of individual polls to heart, one Biden advisor said earlier this month. What will matter is next year when our voters are fully engaged. Others point out that the polls look similarly bleak for the Democrats ahead of the midterm elections last year, yet there was no significant red Republican wave. Mike Donilon, a senior White House consultant, has been urging anxious Democrats to settle down and trust the Rose Garden strategy. This is essentially a project fear approach focusing on the dangers of a second Trump term. Biden will keep saying that democracy is at stake because America's sacred institutions may not survive another assault from MAGA Republicans. That message, combined with endless frightening TV adverts showing MAGA fanatics storming the Capitol on 6th of January 2021, should help mobilise anti-Trump voters as Election Day approaches. Yet most Americans are not nearly as exercised about the Trumpist threat to democratic norms as partisan Democrats are. Many voters considered the Biden administration's radical identity politics on racial and LGBTQ issues to be at least as disruptive to the fabric of American life. Team Biden is betting that by this time next year, the economy will have blossomed. That's quite a gamble. For now, voters appear to be sick of Biden and his cabinet bragging about employment figures when a record number of people feel worse off. Bidenomics is, at best, a giant experiment in government spending, the results of which are yet to be seen. Americans may not be in the depression, but they are depressed. That economic feel-good factor is likely to prove elusive. The issue on which Democrats are most confident they can win is abortion. It would be an irony if Biden, America's second Catholic commander-in-chief, found himself re-elected thanks to a practice which his church condemns as an excommunicable sin. But Joe has never let his faith hamper his career, and even ardent anti-abortionists now admit that what they call the life issue has become toxic for Republicans in many swing states. Since Dobbs, the Supreme Court decision last year which overturned Roe v. Wade, a variety of state-level and special elections have shown that whenever what pro-abortionists like to call women's reproductive rights are on the ballot, the Democrats can drive out huge amounts of support. Trump understands this point. That's why in recent months he has endeavoured to sound moderate on abortion. It's delicate, he says. He has called his rival Ron DeSantis's six-week abortion ban in Florida a terrible thing and suggested working with both sides to find a compromise. Such talk draws criticism from evangelical and Catholic groups, but it doesn't appear to dent his popularity in the polls. Critics scoff at his shallow flip-flopping, but Trump understands the zeitgeist better than his rivals. Morality in politics belongs in a galaxy far, far away. That was Freddie Gray. Next is Kate Andrews. Adulthood was once determined by age, but now we've extended childhood far beyond the teenage years. If the government gets its way, the next generation will never grow up. There are reportedly plans to ban cigarette sales to anyone born after 2009. This would mean that, come 2060, 50-year-olds could be begging their elders to pop into the local corner shop to buy them a pack of 20. We need a new metric of adulthood, and I have a proposal. The real mark is not an age or any particular milestone. It's really when you receive your first piece of unsolicited feedback. It's a grim but unavoidable rite of passage, having personal and outlandish comments directed your way, often in such a breezy or casual manner you'd think they were talking about the weather. 
The penny dropped for me recently when I was at dinner with some girlfriends, all of us in our early 30s, all of us in different stages of life. Yet we could sense a common thread between us, some kind of angst that we couldn't immediately describe. What was it about adulthood that we were finding so tough? What if, I finally asked, the problem isn't the paths we're on, but rather the exhaustion that comes from fielding comments from friends and strangers about those chosen paths? At the very least, this would help explain the defensiveness, queasiness, and slight paranoia that seems to set in as we leave our 20s behind. Perhaps I should have been better prepared for it. Pop culture was full of warnings when I was a kid. My teenage years were dominated by Sex in the City and Friends reruns, designed to show just how unkind adults can be. I assumed the dialogue was over-exaggerated to make a point. People wouldn't comment so blatantly and brazenly on other people's lives. Now I know that, if anything, those shows were understating just how judgmental people can be. The comments start early, especially if you partner up too early, before 25, or too late, after 28, with a glorious few years in between during which you are largely left alone. That blissful window creates a false sense of security. Once you pass 30, the unsolicited commentary ramps up. The feedback I receive has increased significantly since the COVID lockdowns. I went into the pandemic age 29 and came out at 31. Apparently, during that time of great isolation, I was supposed to have assembled the picture-perfect family. But it wasn't until I found myself standing in a circle at a drinks party last year, with a woman in the center of the circle handing out definitive declarations of on track or behind based on each person's age, marital status, and parental status, that I thought it might be time to seek out some advice on how to handle all this. To my great annoyance, I've been told the truth. Your 30s, say trusted women who went through this decades ago, is simply the worst. Nearly everyone is nervous and insecure about their big decisions, so they naturally double down on them, as if there were only one right option. Just muddle through seems to be the prevailing wisdom. It's not the update I wanted, but it does help to explain why two friends, making the same choices roughly six months apart, keep trying to convince me that the other one has her timeline all wrong. It seems the smallest deviations right now can trigger personal mayhem. There is some good news, though, or so I'm told. Once we reach 50, the comments will largely go away. The decisions to partner up will have probably been made. Decisions around having children will have come and gone. There will be far fewer personal choices to target or judge, and the emotional shields will drop. Fantastic, I think. Just 17 years to go. In the meantime, no one is safe from unsolicited feedback. Share any piece of information and prepare to get verbally slugged. A friend who recently got engaged is now bombarded with questions about when she plans to have a child. Another friend, still in her 20s, recently passed her exams for business school, only to be asked by an acquaintance at a networking event, but when will you have the babies? Sometimes you don't have to say anything at all. A friend keeps getting asked unprompted if she's pregnant, the only explanation we can piece together, besides people's zest for inappropriate commentary, is that she likes to wear comfortable dresses. It seems having children offers little respite. Friends with one child are informed it's cruel not to provide a sibling, while one friend with a big family has been shamed for having so many. A woman I know has started telling people she can't have children, rather than admit she doesn't want them. Friends and family only respond one way, she says, by telling her she'll regret not doing so. She knows they're wrong, but that doesn't make the feedback any more enjoyable. I factor in these experiences with my own and am left baffled by adulthood. 
It turns out the playground bully has nothing on a grown-up who sees their peers doing things a slightly different way. How to handle the next few decades? I'm striving for a combination of emotional steel and empathy. I let the comments roll off me, but not before clocking them and vowing to try never to repeat them to someone else. But a few weeks ago, I was caught off guard when a friend casually suggested I am bad with kids. I had to get to the bottom of it, not least because it isn't true. I have two godmother badges to prove it. My friend clarified he did not mean I am bad with kids, but rather that I don't have kids yet and have not shared openly my thoughts about doing so in the future. Two very different statements, somehow being used interchangeably. I walked away grateful that I understand the difference. That was Kate Andrews. And finally, here's Lloyd Evans. Free grub, free booze, and the chance to fall in love. That's the deal offered by Blind Date, a matchmaking strand in The Guardian that brings together lonely hearts and asks them to spill the beans. When I applied for this enticing freebie, I had no expectation of being chosen, but my email was answered within hours. Amazing. Randy Singletons are in short supply among Guardian readers. I was asked to describe my interests, which are rather limited. I tend to avoid travel, sport, art, museums, cars, planes, movies, pubs, music, parties, dancing, eating out or holidays. I'm never invited to dinner by anyone or for the weekend, thank God. I avoid TV and my idea of hell is a walk in the countryside. What I really enjoy is theatre, politics and reading comedians' memoirs. I felt it highly improbable that The Guardian would find someone who liked me. I can't. The advantage of a blind date is the absence of foreknowledge. Meeting people online means sifting through heaps of data, much of it inaccurate. A typical woman in my age group will claim to like grand opera, Caribbean travel and volunteering at shelters. A lot of women are dog lovers. No amorous woman will admit to owning a cat, with good reason. A pet is an alter ego that reveals how you relate to others. A dog is a son. A cat is a mother-in-law. The sleuths at Blind Date in The Guardian found me a potential suitor and invited me in for a photo shoot. This was my first visit to The Guardian. The newspaper is based inside a largish glass-fronted building which looks like a mental health charity or a firm of international tax dodgers. I was told to wait beside a cordon of plastic security gates, and I watched as dozens of Guardian hacks swiped themselves out after a long day making planet Earth safe for the next generation. An intermediary, Cathy, arrived and went over the practicalities of blind date with me. She explained that some of the flakier volunteers misunderstand the arrangement and feel that their privacy has been invaded when they read about themselves in the paper. She led me into a very messy studio, occupied by an attractive young photographer named Linda. She then walked out, closing the door behind her. This left the two of us alone in a private room. I asked myself who was most at risk here. Me, the unknown visitor, Linda, the vulnerable snapper, or the Guardian's HR department. Luckily, the photo shoot passed off without a Me Too moment. I had great trouble finding the restaurant. Brunswick House, which was lurking in the shadowy interstices of a T-junction in Vauxhall. I was heading towards Clapham when I got a call from the long-suffering Cathy, who guided me safely to the rendezvous. There, to my amazement, I found my date, Karen. She'd been at the table for half an hour. In her place, I'd have cleared off after ten minutes. 
Karen and I had no trouble gabbling away for two hours, and I made a mental note to avoid the topic of Brexit. I think I did all right, and it probably came up only a couple of dozen times. I also had to conceal my detestation of dining out. Following my usual habit, I ordered a side dish from the food bank end of the menu. We chatted until 9.30pm, and then Karen stood up to say farewell. We hugged amicably, and she was gone. Next day, I wrote a review of our date and emailed it to Cathy, who gave me top marks for my jottings. I love these answers, she gushed. Two weeks later, the piece appeared, and I sprinted to the newsagent with a pound coin and a few coppers jingling in my pocket. The last time I bought The Guardian, it cost 65p, so I was expecting the price to have doubled, roughly. But it now costs £3.80. That's half my weekly food budget. As I skimmed the piece... I was aware that my romantic shortcomings were being chortled over by thousands of lefties sitting in strip-pine kitchens across North London. The Blind Date Strand remains popular because it's the only part of the paper where heteronormativity, i.e. real life, is treated as unremarkable. Women are openly objectified and judged in the bluntest terms. I was asked to describe my first impressions of Karen, and I answered a beautiful blonde. The sub-editor added, with lots of patience as if this were a virtue I admire. Why doctor my words? I guess that the phrase beautiful blonde might have sparked fainting fits among the childless 30-something spinsters who buy the paper. Next, I had to grade Karen, as if she were a meat pie or a funfair ride. Marks out of ten. I answered eleven, as it would have been discourteous to suggest that she was anything less than perfect. Then, a booby trap question. Would you introduce her to your friends? A common response to this question is, my friends would love her. But to me that sounds presumptuous and self-regarding. I said, I only have three friends, Rob, John and Cynthia, and I hope Karen would like them. The Guardian redacted their names, perhaps fearing that anyone accused of socialising with me might have grounds for a libel action. The only change I didn't like was my answer to the question, what do you think she made of you? I replied, shouty far-right nutcase, which they altered to shouty and far right. Now, the tone of that phrase is subtly but significantly different from the self-mocking words I submitted. To call oneself shouty and far right sounds like the proud boast of a bona fide goose stepper. Finally, the key romantic question. Do we lovebirds want to meet again? I said yes, of course. Karen was more equivocal in her replies. Possibly, she conceded. Asked if she wished to introduce me to her friends, she answered with sublime obliqueness, some of them. It wasn't exactly a five-star rave. I turned to Kingsley Amos for comfort. He said, a bad review may spoil your breakfast, but you shouldn't allow it to spoil your lunch. I'd happily try again, of course. I know the Guardian likes to give criminals a second chance, but their munificence may not stretch to a hermit with a hungry heart. And that was Lloyd Evans bringing us to the end of this week's edition of Spectator Out Loud. If these articles have left you wanting more, then why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kemcaran. Thanks so much for listening and please do join us again next week.